Second Bananas is recorded on unceded indigenous land belonging to the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Unceded means that this land was never surrendered, relinquished, or handed over in any way. We support the various strategies that indigenous peoples use to protect their land and their communities, and we commit to working in solidarity with them. We acknowledge that as people living and working on these lands, we are accountable to those who have cared for this land since time immemorial. It is our intention to continue learning how to honor this responsibility. Initiating incident is. I mean, it does, but it's could it could be anything. Well, yeah, right. Like, Especially now, find a new like, new reason so to perpetuate much more awful shit that you can just be like, well, they like everything they did in Iraq is just like that's so much worse. <laughs> in a, in or a like you know, funding counterinsurgency yeah. efforts in Nicaragua through selling crack to urban black neighborhoods for like a decade plus which is actually like documented and can be proven you know to have people quibbling about oh this tower that tower this temperature that temperature melting this melting that i don't know you guys are wasting your breath (laughs) meanwhile right making it be like well like and don't get me wrong like we should fucking prosecute george bush but like every president from like the is a war criminal. Yeah. onwards is a is an international war criminal and we should we should like and even if we don't prosecute them just admitting that would be like okay a good start right totally like woo <laughs> speaking of war criminals west i don't know <laughs> <That's a terrible laughs> way. do you guys want to do a podcast uh, we could do a podcast um, we can we could Hi, everybody. Welcome to Second Bananas. Welcome to Second Bananas. Podcast where we talk about the clout behind the clout that you didn't know about. Uh, Or sometimes you did because you're cool. Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes. I don't know about it usually until I'm talking about it. So you you didn't know anything about about today's subject until we started talking until until we started talking about it right now and then i i just i downloaded it instantly that was gonna be my angle style man (laughs) yeah man i kind of did the no research thing this week so uh, oh yeah yeah i didn't know but yeah i i did this one anyway because i was working on it and i wasn't sure if we discussed who was going but i was just like i got this one in the the can pretty much now so so we uh, can do it yeah we're we're podcast about people second bananas kind of figures behind everything um i'm joe hey i'm wes and i'm craig and uh yeah today we're looking at uh well i'll let wes do the introduction since it's sure. he's kind of running this episode yeah this one's mine so so yeah keeping in line with talking about things underplayed and underappreciated um i want to go back uh back to the 1930s and 40s and talk about a subject who's kind of had a very prominent role in in kicking off the the blues and, and rock and roll kind of uh genres um but before i get talking a bit about her i want to i want to kind of take a temperature of uh of kind of what's the first thing that comes to our minds kind of when you hear rock and roll like like for you guys is there like an artist or or a band that immediately comes to mind when you when you when when someone says rock and roll 
Randy Rhodes. Oh, Randy Rhodes. Yeah. Who's I Randy think, Rhodes? Um, dude. No. Maybe <laughs> I have more, no idea. Maybe a bit more metal, actually, than rock and roll. Randy Rhodes. But Randy Rhodes was Ozzy Osbourne's guitar mm. player. Not that he not that he was possessed by Ozzy. That wouldn't have been very cool Randy, at all. So he's Black Sabbath's guitarist. Or wait, or Ozzy. No, Ozzy. That, was no that, that was Tony. Yeah, that was Tony Iommi, yeah. who was yeah. also probably maybe even more rock and roll Ooh, than Yeah, because he lost two fingers. And he played <laughs> yes, with a big still finger. fucking rocked. It still yes. fucking rocked that shit. <laughs> really? That's, that's way um, that's metal. Yeah, I would say but like if, for me, yeah. I guess like Led Zeppelin because I was Led like Zeppelin. my brother and I got super into Led Zeppelin. And what's funny is like I think what I know now about Led Zeppelin is that they basically stole everything they ever did from like uh, blues musicians and particularly like black blues musicians. Really? Um, so that kind of plays into our topic. Oh, big time. Like, I mean, stole is kind of a weird term. Like we talked yeah. in our, our, the Art Garfunkel episode about how like um, a lot of people from the English folk community were mad at Paul Simon because he's like, he kind of, he, he tried to pass off a couple of like uh, uh, adjusted folk songs as his own, as right. his own writing. And they were pissed about that. And this was a similar situation. I don't, I, yeah. That's no, I... That's good. I'm like, I'm, I'm really interested to hear that that's, that's where it is. Cause I, it's so interesting. Cause like you, you so rarely actually even hear the term rock and roll these days. I find it's all, it's always like classic rock or hard rock or contemporary or whatever. Cause um, I still don't really like, I, it's kind of funny. Cause like you rock and roll to me sound is more like the classic stuff, right? Like it's like, yeah. Well, that's I, what I think, when I think of like Chuck Berry Elvis, yeah, like and, and whatever. Elvis, I think, is the one that sticks out in my mind the most. And I don't know if it's just because he he put like rock in a lot of his titles, like like Jailhouse Rock or whatever. But yeah, that honky tonk vibe. Yeah, that kind of like more of like the the I guess like rock and roll blues kind of thing might be totally where I'm at for like rock and roll. But and even just the attitude, I think Elvis, Elvis yes, for me is also yes. a big, and that's a big like, like rock presence right. because of that the whole attitude, the whole hair, so, and, and even I mean for for yeah. a famous white dude to be like offending so many people so openly at that <laughs> yeah, time oh, man. was was at, at that point the definition of rock and roll, right? Mm -hmm. And for, I think for me, I think even just the way he talks, like that kind of like. I don't know the like, hey mama, and like the, <laughs> the Johnny well, Bravo like kind of cadence. Like to me, that like really just like that embodies rock and roll. I think also too, like for me, it's like like on one hand, like I get that at the time Elvis was like this fucking crazy sex mate. He was basically the Marilyn Manson of his day in a lot of ways. Yeah, like not exactly, but it was sort of that. Like he was that was his like place in pop culture was sort of this like like polarizing like sexual thing that like people were very uncomfortable with um yeah. at least at first but it's funny to me because to me and like my punk rock sensibilities like elvis is just so lame yeah you know, like, and, well, totally like yeah and definitely because like as i was saying like yeah rock has has progressed beyond that to to like many other forms and like yeah you can take it as far as you want um but yeah, I, I, I would agree with that too. Like he, that, that kind of, like even just going back and like looking at the way he was shocking, it like seems utterly tame by today's standards. But, but yeah, you, I mean, you just got to look at the times they were in and, and just how, 
how eye popping that probably would have been for like you know a 30s or i mean like a 40s or 50s audience or yeah yeah well in the way popular music kind of cannibalizes itself right yeah it's big time. just kind of yes. chews itself up and it gets disgusted with itself, spits itself out, and then is like, ooh, I'm going to pick through all that and come up with something new that's like equally offensive and disgusting and edgy for the next generation. And then before long, that becomes boring and yawny. And mm. yeah, you know, nobody's I, really well, I think you touched almost, on something there, provoked yeah. by it anymore. With, with being like on the edge, yeah, and kind of like, mm. yes, because it's, I feel like the audience is for like, yeah, that kind of rock style of music. Yeah, they were always yeah pushing pushing the boundary sort of like you know what's acceptable like yeah the the little richards and and everyone they were just doing wild things on stage that like no one had seen before well even now like i think like i listen to a there's a couple of sister rosetta tharp songs that are like even like i get that they're not like they're nothing by today's standards but even listening to them because she also played gospel music and we'll we'll get into that but like so some are like like a couple of her songs like i want a tall skinny papa like that's like right on girl but it's like wow like that's very direct especially for the 40s and 50s right like for a female to be enunciating i mean albeit you know a queer black woman yeah as opposed to a hetero woman but still even just presenting that to the public like yeah this is what i want or this is what people want and for a female to be enunciating that in no uncertain terms yeah. is awesome right. claim claim that right absolutely yeah i just think like like the whole to me like like especially coming from a place of like being in the 90s and sort of like almost like when we talked on the new metal episode it was all that was almost like the last gasp of actual like shock rock like i think that sort of like period of like marilyn manson uh even rage against the machine and then like corn and limp biscuit like that was to me the last time rock was really like even remotely shocking to people. And now it's kind of moved yeah. on more to like, well, a, for a while then it was like the pop stars and, and how young and sexual they were. And also like, even like hip hop, right? Like hip hop was sort of the new thing the to new shock space that could be edgy yeah. and, and push and be edgy in different ways. Um, yeah. And now yeah. it's sort of like almost like music, music just doesn't do that anymore even in pop culture but like then like you have like even like shock jocks which are ra- a radio thing and that's a completely different thing and it almost feels now more like youtube stars have sort of or like online stuff has sort of taken that place of like being the the edge of culture or whatever right but that's the whole other thing. Yeah. Well we got we still got WAP out there so there's, yeah, there's WAP, still some like, people WAP WAP like, I was going to say yeah <laughs> But but yeah, it's only now that I feel like women have been able to get a place and like even they're still getting lots of pushback when they try to be edgy. Oh, like sure. look at all the conservatives that were jumping down like Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion's throats when that came out. So that's well, kind of what I'm like, getting at is uh, like it's still uh, it's still very much a space that's like, I don't know, like it's it's hard. It's harder for women to be edgy in music. Like, well, and the Lana Del Rey shit too, right? Like I think that was another really great example of like, of like um both like how women women of like black women especially but like women of color are sort of like both expected to be sexual but also torn down for it whereas like like it's hard to imagine a like a a non-white woman doing what lana del rey did right and and sort of being and and making a big splash 
I guess. And then Lana Del Rey comes out and says all this stuff like, oh, like, you know, like there's all these, like I'm the only like softer, more feminine artist. Like all these women are very like deliberately sexual and all the artists she names are like non-white artists. And, and sort of, and that's sort of like the thing is like, there's both that like expectation that they're going to be sort of sexual or overly sexualized or whatever, but also then there's like a punishment for, for being that and pushing that boundary and reclaiming that. Right. So, yeah. 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 And yeah. So that's kind of what I'm getting at is like, so if you were to look back at, or it doesn't even have to be the early days of rock and roll, you can, you can just look at kind of the, you know, the rock and roll hall of fame. And it's, it's almost like looking back at the history of men. I think there's only a handful of women that are on there. Um, so it probably goes without saying there were there were more than a few women that have kind of been crowded out of the rock and roll space over the years. Um, but yeah, that's kind of why I want to talk about uh, who we're going to talk about today, because um, this person, Rosetta Tharp, who uh, who we're talking about, she... Sister Rosetta Tharp. Sister Rosetta Tharp um, from her gospel days. Uh, she deserves a lot more credit for the contributions she made to, to blues and rock and roll, uh, because like the innovations she made with guitar were were so influential and like lots of the great people that most people think of as as kickstarting rock and roll people like like Elvis like Chuck Berry they credit Sister Rosetta as their inspiration for making the music that they make and so i just feel like she's someone that that should be better known because like i said i only just learned about her recently and and like she's essentially like the the mother or godmother of, of, of rock. So yeah, I'll tell you a bit more about her. Like I said, she's, uh, she's got a history in gospel music, or I think Joe, you, you alluded to that. Um, so the history of gospel music, well, history of gospel music is pretty much black people have been singing in churches ever since their ancestors were converted to Christianity years ago. Um, but the gospel music as a like actual genre that probably started with um, a man named Thomas A. Dorsey. And he's really credited with it because like, he just was so prolific. He penned over like 2000 gospel songs and his records, like they sold millions uh, both in gospel markets and secular markets. So if you had to credit someone with like starting gospel, it would definitely be Thomas A. Dorsey. I mean, I haven't but, wrote 2,000 of anything, much less like... Yeah. Good, good like, gospel. imagine writing that many songs. Like, so so yeah. this guy was was huge. He was huge in, in the 1930s. Um, but in the late 1930s, that's when swing was really on, on an uptick. So so you had, like, kind of these big swing bands that were, were really the chart toppers, and, and those were the kind of, like, the things that were drawing a lot of, a lot of crowds and concerts as well. Yeah. Swing was black music begin with right like it's because it came out of like ragtime and that kind of stuff yeah yeah so i think it gospel music really came into its own as like its own genre would probably be like yeah in the in the 30s um but that's when swing like i said swing was on the uptake then and john hammond he was a an american record producer also a civil rights activist and he had this idea uh in 1938 that he was going to put on a show at Carnegie Hall, huge, famous concert hall. 1930. Yeah. And uh, he he held this concert event that he titled uh, From Spirituals to Swing. And the idea was this would be like an integrated event where, you know, black people and white people would attend. And it would start off with like 
gospel music and things like that like like you know the spirituals i guess as, as he's called it and then it, it would like move to the the ending acts would be like you know the big swing bands that that uh are kind of charting the tops at the time that sounds like a banger of an event yeah, yeah. it sounds like pretty good and and i think it yeah it, it definitely drew a lot of attention and and caught a lot of eyes because like you know this was like a big huge event at carnegie hall that like both black people and white people were going to be going to um but yeah it had it had some issues uh all of which surely would have been oblivious to people at the 1930s but one of it one of these issues is kind of just like the whole idea of of like codifying it as like from gospel to swing because it had connotations that it was like oh gospel music was you know more more primitive and less refined than than like the swing movie, swing right. music so it's like inherently saying that like you know gospel music typically made by black people you know not as refined as swing music you know which is like what the white listeners are listening to but if you were to listen to recordings at the time you you probably like i could you could be forgiven for thinking that gospel music was more primitive than swing or, music if you I just mean, listened to the recordings because the recordings are made like obviously these people making gospel music don't have access to like the high-end recording equipment and they're using very very few instruments so if you're just listening to the recordings that are played on the on the radio you're probably going to think like oh yeah this doesn't sound nearly as good as as the swing music and those recordings which is an established commercial like pop feeler format part of gospel music's appeal is its simplicity too right like i mean we kind of talked about this in the in the victor hara episode but like it is like a form of folk music in the sense of like that's its origins is in like a, a commute, like as a communal thing that sort of like people did and had a shared repertoire of. And like the whole point is it, it's like primitive is sort of like a bullshit, whatever. Cause that like simple doesn't mean simple, simpler music isn't necessarily like more primitive, which is like a loaded term anyway, but the simplicity is part of it to me, right? Like it's part of the genre too. It's part mm-hmm. of the accessibility and the appeal exactly. and the draw of it is everybody can get involved. If you're stomping, if you're clapping, if you're singing like in support or if you're singing lead or whatever, everyone can kind of have a place. Yeah, and it's a bit exactly. more raucous too and it's less virtuosic, which I think is like a big part of of also sort of like audience participation is like as soon as you have a more virtuosic shift and it's interesting because it i think like rock is kind of what straddles those two lines in a lot of ways um also like it combines what it combines is like the sort of like the common sort of like communal experience and simple song structures of like gospel or r&b or like even like blues with also like the virtuosic soloing and 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 sort of like uh like like um uh like sex appeal and sort of like in that figure of like a lead singer or a lead guitar player um of both jazz and also blues which does both too Mm -hmm. so yeah 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 so yeah basically what i'm getting at is like yes i these, jump ahead these... i'm sorry i think i jumped no ahead no no, and... no it's fine i'm just saying like i i, I just, the only point i wanted to make was like at this time it was like these yeah a lot of these you know high-end record executives like 
and you know white tastemakers for lack of a better word i guess were kind of codifying that gospel music was of like a lesser like quality or or like less refined than swing music and that's that's how the public was perceiving it at the time because that's that's yeah. how the like marketers were were kind of pushing it there was an air of condescension to yeah, the, yeah for sure to the production yeah. of that event right. or at least the way that it was received yes. yeah that, that seems i like don't want to i don't want to lessen like the impact that those that concert had because it it shouldn't be overlooked that this was a place that like gave a lot of african-americans uh you know uh, a platform and it was like presented to an integrated audience at Carnegie Hall. And I, so I think it did, it did help pave the way for a lot of co- collaborations of the forties and fifties, uh, you know, it yeah, black awesome. artists. showed um, the white people a way they could make money off integrate. Possibly. Yeah. I'm not saying that's the only thing, like obviously yeah. there's a cultural element too, but it was definitely like, Oh, hey, we got a way to make some money here, right? Like, Yeah, I'm sure a lot fair, of people saw that too. And to be fair, I think white people already knew that they were able to make money off yeah, of black this people. Yeah, this wasn't the They figured that one out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I, yeah. yeah, I meant in a way that wasn't like complete genocide. <laughs> right. Like right. A way that they no. could still pay Granted. them and profit from them. Like I said, a way that they could make money off integration or at least like sure. integration, yeah. right? Or whatever. So, yeah. 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 But um, so, yeah. Anyways, at the late 1930s, uh, yeah, this was also right when Rosetta Tharp's career was starting uh, to take off. Um, so, yeah. Who's Rosetta Tharp? You might ask if you've never I heard of her before. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah. She was a queer black woman. She became really famous in the 30s and 40s because she was an amazing musical talent. She was a great singer, uh, referred to as the original soul sister, but she was an even more skilled guitar player. And she was also referred to as the godmother of rock. Hell yeah. Um, That's because she invented a style of playing like that she completely developed on her own. um, That many famous blues guitarists and rock guitarists, yeah, people like Chuck Berry, people people like bb king that they came to adopt and adapt her style kind of over the decades and uh she was someone that like she never thought she needed special treatment like even though she played in a lot of like you know segregated communities this was a time when america was still of course very segregated um but she never she never thought she needed to be considered like you know good for for a girl or good given her her disadvantages uh which in the 1930s i guess were primarily just being a woman and being black but like she was good yeah (laughs) she was amazing and 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 she knew she was good and a funny quote that like stood out for me when i was researching this was that after after her shows sometimes you know fans and reporters would would come up to her and talk to her and a lot of times there'd be comments like, oh, your guitar skills are are great. You you play as good as a man or you play just like a man. And Classic. and her response her response was always like this is so good. Her response to those comments were always, Fool, ain't no man can play as good as me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so she's always someone that was like very aware of how talented she was. Yeah. But yeah. That's refreshing. Well, I think that, yeah, that's great. I watched a bunch of her performances and like what strikes me is just how 
natural she is uh, as like a performer, mm-hmm. both like not only in the guitar playing, but also just like being charismatic and being like a fun presence on stage. Like it's especially when you see her like playing with like a bunch of other gospel singers. Like there's a whole video of her just playing her guitar with a whole choir of gospel singers behind her. And all of them are kind of like, you know, they're kind of moving back and forth. They don't know where to look. And she's just like looking right at the camera, smiling, like dancing, like playing and playing her ass off. And like, so comfortable with that. Right. In a way that like, especially in the thirties when like, cameras were this new thing for a lot of people and like not a lot of people got on camera either right like she's she just struck me as such a natural performer totally um and she felt like she was always having fun on stage which was really yeah. cool yeah and realized that commanding an audience was about like demonstrating your passion and kind of getting yes. people on board with it right yeah and i definitely think that that kind of that charisma and that stage presence comes from her upbringing in the church and like, and just singing in groups, like ever since she was, she was a little kid. So, so she definitely has that kind of stark nature. Yeah. 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 And make no mistake. She was definitely making like cutting edge music for the 1940s. Like she was one of the first people to like really make use of an electric guitar in interesting ways. Like I think she's one of the first artists to ever apply like heavy distortion or, or, like really long, like lead in notes and stuff. And so yeah. are like famous for blues guitar. It's so she's watching and like watching those videos, like the earlier performances of hers, she's playing on like a hollow body archtop jazz guitar. And then later she's playing on like with only like one single coil pickup. Right. And then later you can see in like the, the couple of the later performances and like some of the bigger TV things, she's playing like a full on SG electric guitar. Yeah. with like three I remember I don't noticing know. that. And I was like, whoa, they're, they're, I didn't even know they had that. Coil pickups. They're like the bigger, like, I don't know if they're humbuckers. Like they might not be double coil, but they might be like P90s or something. Yeah, uh, that's boring guitar stuff. But like yeah, basically but like. That's cool. It's cool you picked it'd, that it'd be up. It'd interesting to yeah. know like um, <laughs> how much of that stuff was sort of like pushed by her, right? Like I, I still don't know wh- when that yeah. all came about. But like. Yeah. We'll get to Rock that. Music. Well, you go. Oh, cool. We'll get to it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you got to think that she's yeah. like, give me more. What's more, more yeah. things that I can use to like fool or fuck around, figure out this, you know, push the boundaries of what's going on for her familiarity. It seems like that would be you know, what she was going for. Right? Yeah. yeah, and so yeah, I'll get into her early life now because yeah, this discusses it a bit, but. Um, so she grew up in, in a place called Cotton Plant, Arkansas. She was, she was born like, in 1915. Yeah. It's, it's, it was definitely a cotton plant. That too. Like, and Is it I, really? like, I think oh. so. Yeah. Okay. Like I, there, cause I, I saw like a Arkansas. documentary and it had like a water tower with that on the water tower. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Like, well, that's like, yeah. it's crazy that they grew, like, they just grew up like that. Right. Like you don't, you don't necessarily consider that, but like. Imagine growing up in a place like that would be me growing up in a place called like Auschwitz, basically. Yeah. Like Auschwitz, Arkansas, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Welcome to Dumb Crackerville. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little fucked up, but, uh, but yeah, I'm sure they had lots of cotton plants in Cotton Plant, Arkansas. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, as I said, she was, she was, music was a big part of her life from a very young age. Her parents were both, uh, singers in, um, a Pentecostal church and by the age of four, Rosetta was already playing guitar 
and by age six she had already joined her mother's uh, evangelical uh, group of musicians and she was thought to be a bit of a prodigy because she was already a very good singer and and like i said she could play guitar like like i'm the fire star <laughs> yeah <laughs> prodigy exactly uh, I want to also mention her mother was a missionary um, and speaker for the Church of God in Christ, the, C- the COGIC, uh, the, the Kojic. Kojic. I don't Kojic. know if it's got any other names, but um, yeah, so that's a huge Pentecostal church in America. And uh, one thing I think that since uh, Pentecostal followers apart from some other flavors of Christianity is that um, they're believers that it's possible, like you can obtain holiness while still on earth um if you're touched by the holy spirit and so i think that's why uh like the there's like i think a lot of pentecostal churches you've got like the speaking in tongues and uh right and yeah yeah, people people that are like you know they look like they're possessed by the holy spirit and things like that it's a very like active and lots of people singing and so so yeah so that's creating a state right like a state of of euphoria that that sort of like brings people together in both like yes. the the good kind of like like gospel music like everybody feels the spirit kind of way and also yeah. the bad kind of like everybody hold these snakes and don't worry we've got the poison antidote under the counter kind of way exactly yes because that's like yes pentecostals they have like a very firm belief in in heaven and hell and so it's like yeah you're touched by the holy spirit but you're also very fearing of of like the devil and hell is a real place and you don't want to go there type of thing uh but yeah so that's really what what gave her 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 kind of musical like versatility is that she was she was basically like surrounded by music from a very young age and and that just helped her to develop her skills as she grew up um but even though she started out playing music that would have been categorized as i guess gospel um, she didn't. She didn't really run with the uh, the gospel singers like the Thomas Dorseys and and the people that were really kind of the focal point of the the gospel music. She, she was the church smoking with the big band swingers. Not yet. Getting into trouble. She'll get there though. But she was pretty much embodying like that sort of almost like a rock and roll lifestyle very early in her career because after breaking up with her first husband, um, who was an alleged abusive evangelist um what she don't exist i've never heard (laughs) i don't think they do i've never (laughs) yeah they're all they're all good um but yeah after she broke up with her husband she basically just started touring the country traveling to different states and playing at at revival meetings to kind of attract more more followers to the church uh but unlike like typical gospel singers that kind of like made their music for church-going crowds and were, were very conservative in in their lyrics and you know messaging in their songs uh rosetta was making stuff that kind of appealed more to the sinners in the audience and her stuff was like nice not only more pro- like provocative and insinuative it was it was a lot more energetic and and kind of like yeah made you want to like get up and, Real. and like tap your <laughs> feet yeah wow yeah so it was like it was it was like great to dance to and like yeah kind of you know you, you you got a good vibe when you listen to it um so yeah That's by sweet. the time by the time she got to to new york like when she was touring around um she noticed that her audiences were were getting different and they weren't just like the churchgoers she was used they to seeing very simple they were all they were, sinners and they sinned yeah. a lot <laughs> they were probably Best but uh day yeah ever. 
she definitely made music that appeared to both like a gospel crowd and and like a secular audience i guess you could call it um yeah so when she gets to new york she she starts playing at like way bigger venues and eventually she she starts playing at this place called the cotton club in 1938 you cannot escape cotton this is the 19 this is 1930s you gotta imagine yeah but uh so the cotton it was club. a total it was a total mood in america yeah. apparently <laughs> like a giant cotton was a big mood for america for a long time cotton was a popular actor <laughs> we, just, we were just a nation in love with cotton oh god yeah but um so she's playing at the cotton club and this was a a huge club like it was is the most famous club in new york for a long time but in 1938, it was kind of, it was in decline a bit, but it was still getting lots of big acts. Like uh, this is the club that was responsible for people like Duke Ellington, um, who's like a really famous pianist and, and jazz orchestra leader. Um, and also Cab Calloway, who was a super famous jazz singer and dancer and actor. And so it still had like huge acts that were performing there, uh, but it was a strictly segregated club. Um, but segregated in the sense that it was whites only in the audience and blacks only on stage and the, yeah and i think that this wasn't the only club that did that i'm sure that like this was clubs like these were probably a dime a dozen like in the 30s but um the cotton club was like really big and so they had very elaborate performances but those performances were often like played up to the point that they became a kind of mockery of of the performers like like sort of like uh uh like go full-on uh yeah you you, you, you exactly know, yeah. minstrel shows like whatever oh, yeah like oh, I you it was more like okay i thought you meant more like they had become so stereotypical but like in a sense of like like people getting tired of like motley cruise shtick no but you mean like they were like playing up the they're the, playing the up the stuff. like Kind of, yeah. Like, for instance, like Duke Ellington, even though he's the leader of this like huge orchestra band, what, you know, John Hammond would say is the, you know, the pinnacle of white music, they still referred to the music he was producing on stage as jungle music. And right. yeah, and like the walls kind of thing, like that's how they marketed it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and not only that, like inside the walls like are covered just with famous white musicians sporting blackface and so yeah it was uh, it was a scene it was, a, it was a real scene but like i said Fuck. 1930s that's yeah that's it was just everywhere <laughs> uh we were in love with cotton and blackface. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, Rosetta Tharp, she was originally booked at the Cotton Club only for a two-week trial period um, in which the manager had made her an offer of $500 per booking. And when she heard that, she like fell over laughing and thought thought he was joking. Because even though, like I've mentioned, she's someone who is well aware of her talents and that she's probably the best guitar player around or that anyone's ever seen, she still thought it was impossible that so just as a black woman, here, she could be making that much money. $500 a night is equivalent to $10,000 today. And she would Shit. not have been making that much per night on her no. tour up, up to certainly New not. York. <laughs> no, no, certainly not. So she gets yeah. to New York and she's incredible. As soon as she gets to the Cotton Club, she's like, holy shit, 
I guess I'm in the big leagues now. Um, as, yeah. as repulsive as the big leagues might be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're like, finally, I'm in the big leagues. Yeah. Because, like, I yeah. feel like, like her, like, whatever confidence she had was just, like, so well-deserved, you know? Yeah, for and sure. kind of necessary she... to be her, in a way, you know? I think so. Like, she was pretty sure of herself. She was, like, sure-footed. But, I mean still you would you would like she had to gawk at that and be like oh yeah like is, imagine yeah. someone was like oh, i'll give you ten thousand dollars a night like imagine saying right. that to anyone except like fucking like tom cruise is like what yeah, yeah you're like okay what's the what's the catch yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but yeah as i as i kind of alluded to um her stage performances at the cotton club were a bit of a demeaning parody of of what her actual performances were and like they they would get Jeez. dancers to go on stage with her pretending to be holy rollers and things like that and basically just kind of like openly making fun of her religion even when she's like still devoted to it but yeah <laughs> but yeah she she sucked it up and took the money and uh became a smash hit and that's when record labels started calling her she signed a deal with decca records uh Deca. This was a a three recording contract, so she could record three or four. I think it was four. Yeah, four songs. The first of which was originally done by Thomas Dorsey, which was like kind of a gospel song. She had reworked, uh, but she had like kind of reworked it to the point where she really had made it her own. So she gave it a new name, and she called it "Rock Me," which is a pretty rockin' song or rockin' yeah. name, I think. Uh, it's a, it's a little more rocking than than what Thomas Dorsey had originally called it, uh, which so was... she was stealing music, too. She, oh, yeah, it's, it goes back. It goes back. I mean, but, I mean, have you heard about music? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no, every, every new song is a completely different and original thing that has no... A whole really new set of notes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you have to invent new notes. new key. New notes, yeah, Craig. Yeah. You have to make yeah. new notes. <laughs> well, you know, based on how many microtones there are, right? There's like bajillions oh, yeah. of microtones. Tones. Yeah, all you, you can have do to it. do you is write everything between. microtonally, and you'll be fine. Yeah, so she she makes a song called "Rock Me," which is way better than Thomas Dorsey's name for the song, which was originally titled "Hide Me in Thy Bosom." Like, I mean, I, it's not a bad title. I disagree. <laughs> I think I would rather. Well, it depends it's on the not, context. But I would rather yeah. have someone hide me in their bosom than rock me. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> The Lord. Doesn't, We're talking about the Lord's bosom. Well, I would ra- definitely rather be hidden in the bosom of the. Well, does the Lord the have Lord... a bosom? That would suggest he's not in good shape. Oh, I no, don't know. I don't know. <laughs> bosom is a bosom. Man. Hide me in. Hide me in thy pecs would be if it's about the Lord. <laughs> no. <laughs> hide me in thy rock solid pecs. Now the Lord is a man here, Wes. Oh, yeah. Wes, you're so progressive. But you think God is a man? Come on. You're right. You're right. That is totally. Oh man. And after I like just, God has a form. You're right. You're right. Uh, My God has rock yeah. solid pecs. God damn it. A woman can have rock solid pecs. I'm just saying. Uh, you're right. Um, you're right. I don't know. I just think like, would you rather be hidden in the bosom of the Lord or rocked by the oh, Lord? It, it's not what I'd rather be. It's just in terms of what what kind of song is gonna make me, what what song title is gonna make me feel like, like moving or I don't know. As a song title, Press rock me. Feel horny in a good way versus in an ashamed way. Yeah, yeah. I need to. I need to. I need like to have secret boners while I'm rocking. Yeah. I can't have open boners. Secret boners. <laughs> I got a secret to tell you. 
God knows about your boner regardless. Oh. <laughs> damn it. It's got me. Oh, damn, I was, was kind of banking on him not knowing. Damn it. God's kind of pervy. It's a, it's a necessary evil. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll just, I'll just slide in a clip of the the actual song for the podcast. But I just wanted you guys to hear yeah. you get a feel for the sound. reference a bosom in the song <laughs> that's good she kept she kept uh, some of those song lyrics true yeah i think that one of the big things is that she changed was she yeah. changed the first lyric from singing to swinging so whenever you hear her say singing she says swinging Ooh. but yeah but yeah you can kind of hear how that kind of has the like dun, 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 and it's kind of kind of getting that like that rhythm that like kind of blues rocky rhythm it that's coming out bluesy the bluesy tempo it's yeah, yeah. Hearing because it is sort of trans like slightly transitional in that way and that it feels a lot more like a gospel record in terms of like the sounds that they're getting and stuff but that yeah the rhythm is very like that early like r&b sort of like blues like with the the two four or whatever yeah right yeah and and so yeah, you you heard some of the lyrics, but it's it's speculated that one of the main reasons the song was chosen for her kind of first single is just because because those lyrics could be interpreted in a number of ways. So it was it was something that they thought could have been like more appealing to like a wide audience and not just like a gospel audience. It's like the uh, joke, the joke that like every every uh, Christian rock song is just they just replace the word baby with Jesus. It's like the same thing. It's just it's a good formula. Just, it's like, is it about the Lord or is it about her Lord? You don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good way to, to, uh, to co-opt a song. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but she did uh, three other recordings uh, with Decca records. And those basically were kind of the springboard of her career. Cause once those right. got out, her music started getting, listened to by a much larger audience and then she was able to move on to bigger venues because more people had heard of her and so after she makes those recordings she moves up the ladder and she starts playing at a place called the cafe society and that was another integrated club established by john hammond and while playing there same guy yes john hammond the same guy that did the spirituals to swing guy Spiritual swing concerts, yes. The same type of integrated as the no, club no. So or the same type no. Of integrated as Carnegie Hall. Yeah. So Car- Car- yeah. So John ha- John Hammond is the guy that put on the Carnegie Hall show. So he's he's actively like just trying to like use music as a basis to kind of help black and white people maybe get along. So right. And I didn't mean to misphrase it as actually being integrated because the. Cotton yeah. Club didn't sound like it was integrated at all. <laughs> yeah, no, that, it, was, it was. Yeah, sorry, the Cotton Club was segregated. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, but that was my bad. I I misphrased it. No worries. Uh, yeah, Cafe Society is 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 attempting to be integrated, and 
while she's there, she catches the attention of Lucky Milner, who is a prominent big band leader. White or black? Um, I believe he's black, but that is a very good question. I think I had, I think I attached his thing in the uh, in the show notes, but let's check that out. Yes. Um, born Lucius Venables in Anniston, Alabama. He's black, right? I believe he is Caucasian. Oh, he's Caucasian. Yeah. Lucky Millinder. Okay, yeah. So yes. Oh, actually, no. It's tough to say. It's tough to say because they're all black and white photos. Black and white photos, and it was sort of that era when, like, to be in professional society, even if you were black, you had to make yourself look as white as possible. Interesting. Yeah, Yeah, you can't really tell. We died in hell. We'll let it uh, from yeah. images. Yeah. But you could probably I, find. Well, I'm sure if I, yeah, I just I'm just looking at his Wikipedia page. It doesn't say specifically. Does not say. Uh, yeah, we'll to... Lucius Venables. Yeah, his name. I'm gonna guess Lucius. that he's black. I'm gonna guess. That's what I thought. Again, we'll we'll try to confirm that, but in the show notes. Yes. Um, but yes, so so after getting the attention of Lucky Millinder, uh he offers to to let her sing and with his big band so now she's got an entire swing band backing her up and it's during this time that she also makes the other very notable change of switching from an acoustic guitar to an electric guitar just like bob dylan just like bobby dylan did he ever yeah did did, yeah like his big betrayal no i didn't know that um, but in this case, this was somewhat of an upgrade because well, uh, this this changes her play style in an important way that that really kind of blings it into that blues category, that blues kind of rock guitar sound. Because before, when she was playing solo, she had to constantly be like playing lots of notes to like kind of just fill the air and 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 not be boring. But now that she's got this big band behind her and with an electric guitar she can play these kind of like long really greasy lead-in notes that give the band a little a little bit of time for them to shine and it kind of really adds this like new quality a new sound to her guitar playing that people really haven't heard before um yeah and it's kind of this style that that she innovated by playing alongside this big band that we eventually start to see get emulated uh over the years and and like really really kind of innovated and 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 perfected by some other like guitarists like bb king and t-bone walker uh, i think um, she perfected it and you'll find they degraded it <laughs> they might have <laughs> but she definitely she definitely paved the way and 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 then they kind of like took it and, and took it to another level but but yeah before like you can you can hear bb king songs and like for me that's like the the kind of prototype of of blues guitar when i hear bb yeah. king it's like that's it's like I, you immediately know that's blues guitar and that like that sound though was was not heard before Rosetta Tharp kind of did it on her guitar. So Rosetta Tharp's kind of like Yeah, BB you know, King, why'd you rip off yeah. Rosetta Tharp? Why did you yeah. tell? You should have told us. It's the story of music. It's all That's B- all it is. It's just BB all music is. Nobody else is just, to blame. Just ripping off the BB. people that came before you. One way or the other. Or yeah. you could just call it a shared commons that everybody builds from and develops further i don't know craig kind of sounds like communism to me to varying (laughs) degrees of credit just share the guitar the real innovators yeah yeah so 
So she's doing wild things with her guitar and people are loving it. She's like packing the houses now at the Cafe Society and pretty soon she's got to move on to some bigger and better venues. So after the Cafe Society, Rosetta Tharp continues to move up the venue ladder and she starts playing at a place called the Savoy Ballroom. Now at the time, this was referred to as the world's finest ballroom. And so if you were... According to Wikipedia. What? But yeah, it was around in the 1940s. Apparently can't argue with that. So this was a place like if you're, if you're into dance music, if you, if you want to hear the finest dance music around, you would go to the Savoy ballroom Mm -hmm. and her band, like now that she's playing with the big sweet band, that's Milner's band. That's one of the most popular acts at the Savoy ballroom. And fun fact about the Savoy ballroom is that Malcolm X was a patron, um, of that establishment. Uh, but at that time he was still going by the name Detroit red. So this was before he had kind of really made a name for himself, but this was one of the places well, that he liked to go through. Before he went to prison and converted, right? Yes, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Uh, but yeah, this was a place that he liked to go to and, and would maybe sometimes conduct business there. And it wasn't long after uh, Rosetta started playing there that the place got totally shut down with city officials citing prostitution as the reason, but more likely the reason was because it was a place where black men and white women could dance together. And that's kind of a big no-no in New York Ooh. at the time. Ah, they're dancing <laughs> so, together. Yeah. Shut it down. Can't have it. That's exactly what it sounded like. Yeah. <laughs> Get out. Close it. Can't have that. So... Pretty much around this time, this is after the Savoy Ballroom, the big band kind of breaks up. Uh, she parts ways with it. So and this would be the end of Act One, is what you're saying. In, could be. In the movie about her life. Yeah. But she does. She doesn't break up with band because of that incident. I should mention. She kind of she separated with the band because she had uh, she started to have misgivings about the songs that that she was producing with them. Mm-hmm. And I know you you had referenced the song off the top, "Tall Skinny Papa," and right. that was one of the songs that was wasn't the big band secular songs that she wasn't so hot to do because of her like yeah her kind of church upbringing. And she was still quite conservative. And this provocative song about a tall, skinny papa uh, didn't quite sit right with her. Or and from the sounds of it, she preferred pa- tall, skinny mamas, maybe? Well, she did. She might have in real life. Uh, but that's so funny that you mentioned that because the follow up to Tall, Skinny Papa was a song called Big Fat Mama. <laughs> and she, she also didn't like the lyrics to that song. So it was kind <laughs> yeah, of like after that. that she kind of just was like abruptly up and 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 left Milner's uh, band and went I'm solo for a while. I'm tired of talking about people who are <laughs> people's bodies. Yeah, yeah. She could, she's gonna take I want to think about short, skinny people and tall, fat people and everything in between. No, you but there's actually that. that's crazy. Nobody will buy that. You either got so... tall and skinny or short and fat. That's the only thing you can be now. Okay. I was going to say, there's some conjecture as to whether that is the reason that she left the band, because there are some other sources that say she actually was, um, like, she was more edgy, and it it would think that that wouldn't be something that would cause her to, like, kind of, like, break up the band, but, um, but yeah. So it wasn't her kind of edgy, man. It was just... Yeah. Yeah. But I do think that that would be at odds with 
with some of her upbringing. But like I said, it's hard to tell because because well, what it feels like that was sort of not think of scandalous today. Well, it also feels like that was sort of like part of the appeal was that it it straddled that line. But like, yeah, she seemed. It's interesting to wonder how comfortable she was with like all of this, right? Like, like obviously yeah. she wanted to play guitar and she didn't want to just make gospel music, but also like how comfortable was she with like the rock and roll image too, right? Yeah, and so that's, yeah, that's maybe just outgrowing the format a bit too. Oh, for right? yeah. Sure, yeah. And so that's stuff that's like, yeah, kind of like, yeah, it's all it's it's a bit of speculation, but but yeah, I agree. So. Savoy Ballroom shut down, allegedly over prostitution, probably over black men and white women dancing. Probably over racism. But then this is all happening amidst a musician's union strike that took place between 1942 and 1944. And so as as the Savoy Ballroom uh, stuff happens, I think that's 1941 to 1942. So this is, this is like a strike where it's, First of all, I think it's the longest strike still in entertainment history. It lasted two years, um, but during this time, uh, like union using union musicians, um, they weren't really allowed to make any recordings. It was kind of like forbidden for them to make recordings, but they could still do radio performances and like concerts. So they could do live performances, but they couldn't do any recordings. Um, but could they just, record the live performances? <laughs> I don't think so. Because that's, they weren't that's the that's... sweetest plum of all. <laughs> is the recording <laughs> of the live performances. This happening, this like strike actually did have a big impact on uh, the music industry. Um, so before the this big musician strike in 1942, the the scene was kind of dominated by yes these big swing bands, these big union bands, that yeah they they didn't you know have too much of a problem like finding finding work or anything like that, um, even though they were like these enormous like you know eight nine person bands or more if you have like backup singers and things like that. Um, but after the union strike in in 1944 the scene became more dominated by vocalists and like quartets and like uh so that's when you see like people like i think i don't know if the four seasons were around that time but no they were probably later well this um, was but yeah. the pop era right yes yeah, so now you have all these big vocalists that are now uh headlining and it's not just about the big bands it's more about like the lead person and things like yeah that. it's like that so so, yeah. so if i'm hearing you right your theory is that Acapella was like the scab movement that emerged oh, I from mean, the, uh, the musician uh, strike it, of the 40s. I, it That's probably right. wasn't intentional, but yeah, that it did kind of result from acapella from is strike. scab music, and I will not yeah. hear any other arguments. <laughs> yeah, you heard it here first. All right, yeah, and I think that's exactly it because, like. They knew the the like record labels knew that this strike was coming down the pipe, and so they got everyone. They got all their like artists on their labels to record a bunch of shit before the strike went down. So they had a catalog <laughs> of like unreleased yeah. music, and they were they were figuring, oh, we can wait this out now that we've got this back catalog. We'll be able to wait this out longer than the artists who will be starving off like you know not having work. And they just underestimated they didn't think the about strike lasted two years. Yeah. Yeah, so they underestimated, and it 
it eventually it ended up kind of changing uh, the landscape. Of, well, also, wasn't of this the like then when it became more of a thing for record labels to take percentages of performances and include that in record contracts? Like, mm. I don't know, because it seems like that would start to rise around this in the 50s, especially was when they started could be being as like, well. if you're on our label, it's like we we start managing you, we book you, all that stuff, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. That could very well be. That sounds like it's a I might be way likely off, result but... of this, but yeah, I, I'd have to do more research to know that for sure. But yeah, well, that could like, be another uh, fallout of it. The writer's strike for TV, like how that changed the industry. That was the rise of like uh, reality TV becoming more of a thing mm-hmm. that everyone watched mm-hmm. and even like yeah. digital platforms, right? Because they technically got around the union laws at first. So... <sighs> I think that's strikes. something I, I kind of noticed and like, especially like something we don't talk about is just how much uh, like technological and like financial things shape what music is popular and what music can be made. Like it's well, art in general. Yeah, yeah totally. exactly. Especially like commercial art. Right. It's like, like sister Rosetta Tharp started on acoustic guitar, but then she switched to electric and, why did she switch to electric? Well, that was this was around the time that electrics were being made, mass produced cheaply, and anyone could get them. Right? It was like the '40s and the '50s. That's when it all started. And like even like we were talking about her going from like acoustic to then like a hollow body with a single pickup all the way to like the SG. And Wes, you're probably going to get into that. But people, it's the same thing yeah. with like every era. Like the reason the reason punk sort of happened was because rock had become so big that like guitar shitty guitars were being mass produced and you know like a poor kid in like london could get like a guitar and an amp for like 50 bucks and it sounded like shit but it didn't matter and that's you could piss off all the neighbors yeah exactly totally bargain basement prices and so it's like (laughs) oh like the kinks actually slashed a speaker to get that sound like and now we have pedals that do all that yeah but it was like i mean like like yeah, just like the distortion and stuff like that. That's it's probably not how it's supposed to sound, but it's like, hey, that's a cool sound. Yeah, and, then, and it becomes yeah, what, way to re- replicate it. There's like a button on your pedal for Rosetta Tharp sound. There's a button on your pedal for mm-hmm. make Tom Morello noises. There's a button on your yeah on your pedal for Jimi Hendrix like railing right. feedback. <laughs> yeah, so it's like those sounds that started out as. <laughs> yeah. As you know, anomalies in their music recordings become the effects Staples. of the future. Yeah, yeah well, and exactly. Like, yeah, like that again. Like the 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 economic reality shapes what kind of music they make, too. Right, but yeah, it, it it's an, it's something that we kind of and like the strike too changed the way they ch- because the the record labels started changing what they were doing to sort of like get you know like get around the strike and deal with the strike and then. So it's, it changes like the way what's popular, right? All of a sudden there's like this yeah. gap and like something else can fill it. And it's like, yeah, like the big name singers, the bop trios and quartets and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, so like Rosetta is able to ride this out though, because 1944 at the end of, at the end of this, she's like kind of striking out on her own again. Um, she's more of a solo act. Uh, so she's still got great vocals. So she's still a vocalist. Um, but she's still she's still kind of on her game. And it's in 1944, after the strike, that she starts recording again. 
and she makes a recording with Sammy Price, who's a, a very famous like pianist. But he's he's kind of more into um, he's got like the boogie woogie blues style on his piano. It's kind of more the thing that he's into, the boogie woogie, yeah. And so he does this collaboration with Rosetta Tharp um, on a song titled "Strange Things Happening Every Day." It's true. Strange things are happening every day. Yeah, it's just it's just calling it like it is. Uh, but this this isn't really a match made in heaven, and they don't they don't really see eye to eye a lot um, going on at least initially in this collaboration. And it's yeah, it's because Sam Price doesn't doesn't really like the idea of mis- mixing gospel in with his like boogie woogie style. So what um, is boogie woogie then like? I think it's more like it's like got more of that kind of like swing feel to it. Um, so I think I think he didn't like he didn't really like the way that Rosetta Tharp had had her own her own way for tuning her guitar. Like I think she used open tuning on her guitar, and he wanted her to use more of like playing like a jazz key and things like that. So they they kind of butted heads on in terms of like they the way they wanted the sounds. The song to sound um but it was interesting it was it was actually uh tharp's mother who eventually convinced price to to go forward with the collaboration and kind of let uh rosetta kind of so do was things her, her way was her mom kind of like her manager is that kind of she she wasn't she was never referenced as being her manager Not but like she a was a gospel no, but she was a she was an accomplished gospel singer and musician in her own right. And, and the way these stories describe her, it's like she could be a very um, intimidating presence when yeah, she wanted right. to well, be. And, kind of and also, like it seems like she kind of like accompanied Rosetta and and fought for her or sort of like advocated for her in a way that I don't know. I've I, this is actually the only case that I have that I have, I've heard of it. So yes, that probably is the case. She definitely did it in this case. So it does seem like she definitely, um, she yeah, definitely like, would like the push fact for that she would like went to this guy and was like, Hey, like let's work this out, blah, blah, blah. Like, like a, he would have had to already sort of like be familiar with her on some level. And she would have had to know, like, so sort of like it sounds like she was sort of like well rosetta's being yeah. like yeah right now like so i just need I think a it... moment and then she can and then we can like that's interesting to me because it feels like there was a lot of like i think like as much as like clearly that she was a trailblazer like again nobody does this in a vacuum and it's like there's this guy that's doing all these integrate integration concerts to bring black people and white people together she has this whole community that that she grew up in that gave her the music like like nobody really does these things on their own right you know, there's a whole, mm-hmm. it sounds like she had a lot of people sort of backing her and they, they, they recognized that she was a talent and that she could do these things. And they all yeah. kind of pushed for her and like, like pushed her forward. Even when, you know, if her mom didn't agree with her, like smoking with the swing singers or whatever, when she was like on tour, she was like, well, we can make something out of this and we can do something. So I'm still going to support you and, and make sure you do all the right things and you get all the right stuff. Sounds like she's just a kick-ass producer. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to say. That's what I said, basically. I mean, I just said it yeah. in a long-winded, boring way, and you like, I, 
Yeah. Some did I not mean, perfectly. I imagine that could have been the case, but this is this is the only case that I hear of her intervening and doing this sort of thing. Well, as um, we established off the top, was <laughs> Yeah. Nobody really knows what happened on 9-11. So nobody hey, really just, knows what happened with Rosetta Tharp. I, I, I'm just saying, like, if she was a bigger presence there and was like accompanying her on tours, there there might have been more information. Right. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't. Think, um, I don't know. Wes, but I'm in a, any I'm case, a, I'm a mo- mother Tharp truther, and Wes is. <laughs> yeah, she does That's sound the dividing great. Line podcast and i'm withholding my judgment myself (laughs) craig craig is like the middle position he believes that sister like mother tharp was important but not but not the vital like not instrumental he's on he occupies the the middle of the spectrum that wes and i exist on right absolutely thank you for occupying that space it's my pleasure take my side I occupy the Let's center mind. in absolutely no other spaces, so <laughs> right. you, you guys can have it. <laughs> so her mom gets her to do this boogie woogie thing. Yeah, her mom gets gets good old Sammy Price to to go ahead with the collaboration, and this song, which is "Strange Things Happening Every Day," uh, this song charts all the way to number two on the R and B charts. It was then known as the race chart, but uh, it's neither here nor there. Like I said, 1930s. Woo! Yeah, it's called the race chart. <laughs> like, as in like, as in you know, race black to or the white. Top of the chart. <laughs> yeah, oh. race. It's a race. Oh, okay, that's, uh, Sprinting. Oh, I was going for a much more wholesome yeah. angle on that. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't. I I don't know. Yeah, I assume it was race, uh, referring to your the color of your skin. Yeah. I only say that because it was renamed to the R&B chart. (laughs) Oh, fuck. America. Yeah. What the fuck? Oh, yeah. It was like a race race thing. Yeah. That's what I said. A race thing. It was like a race race thing. Yeah. You know it. You know it. Uh, Yeah. So it makes it all the way to number two. And this uh, is the highest a gospel song uh, had charted at the time. So it kind of like broke the wall and was like, hey. We're making good music here. Um, yeah, and so in 1947, Tharp does another collaboration with Sammy Price called This Train, um, which doesn't chart as high as uh, uh, Strange Things Happening Every Day, but this is the song that a lot of uh, blues musicians will come to reference as like their inspiration and things like that. This Train is a clean train this train this train a song about good clean living yeah it's like this is a good clean this is popular yeah it's like a it's like this train is like a good clean train like don't come here if you're a sinner and stuff like that so this is getting like back more to her her conservative roots with with this song um so she's done all the 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 bad teen stuff and now she's like back on the circuit telling people she was a sinner too but now she's washed clean and yeah she's a clean train Hey, train, yeah, don't pull to, no jokers. That yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, get. She need to wash all the big fat mamas and tall skinny <laughs> papas off of her. They can come, but they have to be clean. Okay. Yeah, exactly. 
And you can, um, have, you can have the tall, fat ones and the skinny, short ones. They just have to be clean. That's Those are the new rules now. Exactly. It's good, clean living. She's back to her good, clean Christian living. But not for long, because right after that collaboration, she does another collaboration with another gospel singer called Marie Knight. And this is uh, this is around 1946. And the note where the... It's crazy that she's like doing all these collabs, you know, like, like I just picture her being like on like, like gramophone Twitter being like new collab with Marie Knight drop in this week. Oh yeah. Brand new, brand new. She's got a bunch of, a bunch of featuring. Check of Spotify for details. hundred percent. And um, the interesting thing about her collabs with Marie Knight is that stories will suggest that this might have been a little more than just a melding of <gasps> musical minds. And they were actually romantically involved. I mean, we can we can only speculate because both I think both Marie Knight and uh, Rosetta Tharp denied it but i mean i think as were, you would they were just keeping up in period in that time. i mean yeah, if you course. saw the two of them together they oh, were yeah. they were horned for each other oh yeah oh yeah nice it was just yeah the, it, the electricity between them yes it joe was. the famous lesbian love understander yeah. has <laughs> logged on to the podcast <laughs> i am understanding the lesbian love <laughs> Uh, thank you. I'll be here all. Um, <laughs> yes, they're uh, so. Yeah, they had somewhat of an open uh, secret uh, of a relationship within the gospel community as well. Known that kind of they were an item, but it was never, you know, never explicitly said because nobody wanted to spoil the chemistry. Yeah, their, their individual and collective talent, and no exactly. other reason whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> right exactly um yes <laughs> it is interesting at that time because like i don't again like the lesbian understander here um like it, it was so not talked about that you can even see today when like you know queer people talk from that period talk like they are kind of uncomfortable with using that open language in, a, in like a, sure. a way because they were so used to not from being, sheer not programming being so yeah. worried that like they didn't even have the vocabulary that is there is that here today right totally so yeah yeah i mean they All didn't right. even have the vocabulary to describe rosetta tharp's music i think at yeah, this point they didn't even... right? yeah totally <laughs> yeah so they, didn't, that just... they did not know about wap yet <laughs> no no <laughs> all right i'm turning the lesbian understander <laughs> off now it's okay no. Don't turn it off. Thanks just, for coming out. Maybe just tune, you can tune it down to eighty percent, or yeah. crank it up to one hundred and twenty percent. Either or, I'm fine with. Um, so yeah, she does. She does. Uh, she performs as a duo with Marie Knight um, for years. Uh, I think for like six or seven years until they both decide to go their separate ways in in 1951. When Rosetta was like, you know, I just. I do need a tall, skinny papa. It's time. I've been denying uh, it. I mean, you're not entirely far off. I'm going to get to no. that in, in one minute. But 
before she before she got to her next tall skinny papa she she started doing some bus touring um but she's like really well established now and you know by this time she's got her very own tour bus complete with its very own white man bus driver no like what's that gotta be like like in that period like being like we have a white man driving our bus now like like they must have they must have like like what was what did they treat him like that's what i'm interested in you know well i'm gonna tell you oh boy (laughs) uh so having a, a white man bus driver um this arrangement kind of afforded her a few advantages um that uh would be would be pretty helpful for a black woman in segregated america for example like if uh if there were establishments that were whites only, she could just take her, you know, white bus driver. And a lot of times, like if it was a restaurant, she could still eat there. Or, you know, if it was like a mall or whatever, she could still shop there. Um, I was, I was hoping it was more like a lot of funny jokes and stuff, but clearly it was more like, Oh God, no. Humiliating for her. This is 1950s America. Yeah. So she was treated a bit more fairly. Yeah. Yeah. I just hope like when they were on the bus, and no other white people were around. She was like playfully mean to him. That's what I hope is like she got that. She got that time right. Like she that got. She got. Good. She got her ribbon in. Yeah, and then she like, got some really then, good like, ribbon in. Yeah, it's totally fucking humiliating to be like, yeah, I got my bus driver with me, so I can come in. Like, ugh. So like, and I hope mm. he, and I, you know, I hope he took it well. I hope he wasn't a dick about it. But like, who knows? I'm. That's my head. Yeah. Yeah. She probably. I yeah I mean it's it was probably just as as bad as you would imagine like she would go and be like okay I can't go in here better get my white bus driver and then I could go in um because obviously and it's he's fine like, this is my job like so whether or not I want to I'm doing it but... well yeah and that's just you know 50s America where it's, you know it's fine if a black woman is seen with a white man but it's really not fine if a white woman is seen with a black man uh but yeah you can probably thank slavery for that sweet double standard um so she's got her own bus and you know it's great she can tour around the whole country um but uh additionally she would still tour with like backup musicians um and an interesting note is one of the groups that she used to tour with is uh the jordanaires which is this vocal quartet group uh all white white Um, boys yeah and they kind of she was one i think one of the first um you know bigger acts that they started touring with and it would just so happen that at one of her performances with uh the jordanaires elvis was in the audience and really really took a liking to that music and he was just like this i am taking this, this. <laughs> yeah this, all of this and he that's exactly what sorry, he does sorry, let me, let the jordanaires oh, do go on oh. tour with elvis later and yeah they yeah. they enjoy a lot more of the limelight touring with elvis uh in later years uh but yeah that that pretty much brings us to like the pinnacle the height of like rosetta tharp's career which was sort of early 1950s maybe um where she she puts she pulls together this kind of amazing marketing campaign um where where she sells out like this washington football stadium and the idea is the attendees of this this concert are also going to be guests at her wedding 
and um this is her this would have been her third wedding uh to be precise and uh the idea is like oh you get to go to a wedding and then you're treated to this kick-ass gospel or like blues performance or rock and roll performance whatever you want to call it at the time after and uh yeah it's just one of those fascinating things that like it's such an early example of this kind of shit like like you think of yeah. it shit happening like really like in the in the 60s and the 70s like there was sort of that period in the 60s of like all these these sort of more pop acts or whatever like like all of the like like i think it went from sort of this to like the motown stuff and then like the beatles and those sort of like skiffle early rock acts and like how they became these sort of like celebrity icons but this is like an early example of like that kind of like stuff that like people are like man this is what's wrong with influencer culture like a little bit they're all just like, showing their lives it's like no that shit's been there the whole time it's just become yeah. more like obvious now which is really yeah it is a little bit especially when uh you realize that this like was entirely manufactured because rosetta didn't even have a husband <laughs> or a fiance at the time she like made, she came up with this <laughs> idea signed the contracts and then the show was seven months from now and she's like well i guess i gotta go bag myself a husband oh for the show <laughs> goes out and does it and which i think also speaks to the fact that she definitely like probably was a lesbian because like runs out basically with a bag yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like just finds the yeah. guy like what he's like what what the fuck yeah no, she's just like let's give that bus driver a call i mean see what he's up to. <laughs> i'm sure she didn't have to do too much enticing to get someone to marry her but yeah I, no, I mean, no, like, no. yeah it's it's i'm you all the men in her life like even her former husband rips on guitar oh yeah like of course like who wouldn't i would do you think that it was sort of like a a like way to quell like were there rumors at the like that's what's interesting is like were there rumors at the time that she was gay and was this sort of a way to like quell those rumors along with sort of being that could, marketing stuff yeah right? exactly that could very well be it this could be a way to like squelch some of those rumors because yeah like i said it was pretty well known within the gospel community that yes she was having relationships with uh mary knight and so yeah this could have been a way to quash that um and also sell a lot of tickets so she killed two birds there i would say and no idea she didn't i don't know how long she stayed married to this husband but yeah it does seem like even even her second husband and her first husband these were all just like kind of placeholders. these were all just like her placeholders what do they call it no it's a it's not a beard beard yeah beard is like the term is it still a beard for a lesbian oh good question i don't know uh, it's like a beard. I don't know. I'm I'm the les I, I I guess that's the lesbian understander I should know. <laughs> yeah, right I don't then. know. Well, I'm not even sure what you guys are referring to it's, as so it's like a, than, like a gay terminology. woman marries a gay man to make him seem straight because it's like uh, it much feminine, right? Um like the famous okay. one was like uh Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift. I think it was Elizabeth okay. Might have been another actress. But yeah, it's like the idea of like of, of a gay man marrying a woman, like for show to make him to get right, people right, off right. his back yeah. about being gay. Right. Mm-hmm. right. So I think that's essentially what this was, only a much more elaborate display. And it sounds like this guy kind of was like, like because I watched a little mini doc, and it sounds like he like was like quote unquote her manager, but really all he did was kind of like be a be like a, a house husband. Like he was basically like, but then he started like spending a little too much money 
if you know what I mean. Oh, really? And getting oh. in trouble with, uh, with, with side action and like, Oh, oh really? Shit. That's what it, no, that's I didn't. they kind of, and that's all the people that like knew her. So yeah, it was kind of interesting. That yeah, that makes sense. Um, because yeah, I'm sure he was he was more or less just like a yeah this placeholder in her life to make it seem like she you know not gay or whatever. Uh, yeah, and this was like a massive, massive like stadium concert. Like the pyrotechnics display for this concert in the early '50s probably would have been unprecedented. The the fireworks like exploded and would turn into shapes of her playing her guitar or like what? other other cute things like hearts and rainbows and Doing so like the motley crew shit before motley crew like that yeah and... like, that's in, that's what's insane about this is like she was fucking huge and it's like this so yeah. much so often when we find these people they're like they just never got their due right like they were never popular mm. in their time or they were never seen as the big one in their time but this woman was like huge she like she was yeah she inspired so many people is because she was like filling stadiums and like firework at that time but then just like her legacy you got got it got chewed up and i think it speaks to like how you were mentioning about the cannibalism of like the pop industry and like that's very much what rock music was at this time this this was the pop music and so it it was right around this time, like in the fifties, like they were just like popping up like a diamond dozen. And it just like, yeah, some of them definitely rose to the top more than others, but well, and yeah, the transferring of it so. from like these, these, these sort of like people who originated it, who were all mostly black to like white people that were more palatable to like people who were still like super openly racist and like to like, like prop because they, then they could actually sell the record in like fucking Alabama or whatever. Right. Yeah, well, it goes, something just dawned on me or just occurred to me, the whole, like, Michael Jordan quote of, like, conservatives buy sneakers too, right? Yeah. Was his, was his, like, excuse for not getting political. Yeah. Right? But for music, um, the default of, like, accessibility or, like, marketability by the record industry, which is obviously largely owned by rich white dudes mm-hmm. financed by their capital or whatever would be, Oh, well, who's the, who's the most male, uh, like star that we can put our, that we can promote or like, who's the whitest male star that we can yeah. promote to like, get this out to the widest audience possible because there's a whole contingent of like white people in the Southern States and, yeah. you know, a large contingent in the Northern States as well. Yeah. But that you still want to be able to sell records to, and they aren't going to buy a, a album if it's made by a black person, yeah, and, by a black artist. And even I know let alone, let alone so a black right. female exactly, artist. Right? Yeah. Like, right? That, like there were there were places like even like when, when we did the Star Trek episode, there were stations in the '60s that refused to air the interracial kiss in Star Trek, and that was like in their their like their broadcast rules right Right. show that it was like it's sort of like there's even those official barriers not even like nobody's gonna buy this like we can't even get into this market without a white person you know yeah because there's formal the record they'll just like no we're not taking this shit like it's not and and again like it it's that's sort of like the thing is like it, it wasn't even a case of like people necessarily being racist as individuals it's like well we can't because if we do we can get sued you know, it's a, it's literally against the laws of the state. We can be thrown in jail. Like it's the systemic nature of white supremacy. 
That's yeah, the, I am yeah, also yeah. the white supremacy understander. Uh, no, no <laughs> they really did a good job of building it in. Yeah, they I did. It's, it's really hard to get out. It's like a fuck. Need some CLR. <laughs> need like a truck. So we need full white of CLR. CLR. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, groan. <laughs> after a massive stadium porn, she's like, she's still, she's still like riding that for a while, but. In, towards the late 50s she's she's a little bit more in decline and this is around the time that we start seeing like some exciting new uh acts coming out like chuck berry little richard and elvis so so they're hitting the scene now and and making big waves in in the rock and roll scene um but she's still actually very popular in europe and so she she goes over to europe and does and does several european tours like in the 60s um one of which is in 1964 where she plays alongside um some great super famous like blues musicians like muddy waters um and they play at this like big open air concert in in manchester in an abandoned yard and that's yeah the abandoned rail yard that like that was another thing where i was just like jesus christ this woman is so ahead of her time they they start the show with her and her husband getting out of a carriage and she's already mic'd and she's talking the whole time. Right. And it's, I, at first I can see yeah. this big mic at her neck. Like it's it's like the size of a, a freaking like like coffee mug almost. Yeah. Like, <laughs> at first when I was watching that, I was like, whoa, they don't have lavaliers back then. It How is did. she talking? And then I see this massive and mic. Like, and that's the thing is like that must have had to have been like the cutting edge technology at yeah. the time, right? That's so bad. And that's so cool. Is like that like that stuff you don't see again till the nineties. Where it's like that you start seeing these these I guess like the seventies and eighties too, but it's like it just felt so real. Like she was talking, and that was that was also what impressed me was like she was just such a natural on the mic, like with a mic on her, like walking all the way over, and it was clear her husband was not mic'd. So it's mm-hmm. and then she walks over and she just picks up the guitar and starts playing, and the sound is like amazingly good. You can hear the guitar, you can hear the band. She walks over, there's like a band playing. She starts playing yeah. um it's so unbelievably modern compared to so many other videos from the sixties that I was just so fascinated by it. Yeah. I was surprised at how good the quality, uh, the sound quality was too for that. Um, and the yeah, audience was entirely white. Yeah. An entirely white, uh, European audience. And yeah, all, all came in to see these, these killer like blues musicians. Yeah. And that's like the interesting to know about this, this concert is so now Rosetta Tharp is, is firmly in the blues and, and Jimmy, rock Jimmy Page was in that audience. There's that like, <laughs> oh, yeah. about, like Led Zeppelin, like this was all the stuff that they ripped off was like this blues yeah. and folk music from the United States. Like, <laughs> right. So it's interesting to see her go like, you know, from the late thirties, early forties, where she's firmly in this gospel category and now in 1964, at the end of the career, she is firmly in this blues rock category. But she never changed her style. She didn't She didn't do anything differently. She kept playing the music the same way she had always been playing it. It was sort of like, yeah, the, the industry... formed around her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The industry Amazing. like shifted around her, due in large part to the music she was putting out. So and like, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. The, the Her style is like... When you look at it at first, you're like, oh, she sounds like a blues musician. But then when you realize, like, that's what everybody ripped off, then you're like, holy shit. Because, like, and yeah. you see the progression of how she went from sort of more of this gospel to, like, this rip and rock and roll blues stuff. 
but it's just so cool to see like yeah that's literally where it all came from that's like this is like the the like i don't know what yeah. right like it's, it's yeah it is it's like she it was like by putting a spin on her gospel music she she forced like the industry the tastemakers whatever to put her in a bucket that they didn't yet have a name for yeah and it makes so, a bucket. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and by doing that she like paved the uh, way for the evolution of gospel into blues into rock and roll into yeah yeah and that's, that's so like cool. oh my gosh that's really like yeah why i think she's yeah so amazing and like deserves to be recognized oh, a huge second banana like <laughs> yeah absolutely under uh, um yeah because like it, under celebrated and it feels like she has had like that a lot of these people that we're talking about are people who have had sort of at least a little bit of a of a re-acknowledgement of them right like after they sort of like because i remember seeing like these documentaries and stuff about her a few years ago but even those don't really like they're like oh she pioneered rock and roll blah 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 and you're like okay yeah like she was like this musician who did all this stuff before everyone else but like yeah the, all the stuff that when i actually looked into it was just like this there's nothing like this at the time and it took years for every other musician that was inspired by her to even get there to get to what she was already doing that's what's fascinating about it totally for sure um so yeah a bit about her legacy she died in 1973 uh marie knight took care of all the funeral arrangements and and whatnot that's oh that's like so like they totally were like they (laughs) they were boning they made love that's no that's like that's so fucking cool like that's the kind of shit of like clearly like whatever their exact relationship was like they cared for each other they that was that's like blood bond right you pay for someone for sure. a funeral like yeah yeah so they get, they definitely had a close relationship even though if it was closeted for the most part um so yeah sadly she passed away without like ever really seeing or getting the recognition for like the pioneer that she was um and that's probably like largely because she was a black woman yeah. um like you can imagine if she was a white male like how quickly she would have been inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame um yeah she was eventually inducted um, what year did, did, i was gonna say do you want to hazard a guess when she was inducted i'll give you a hint okay the hall of fame started in 1986 and some of the very first inductees were chuck berry james brown buddy holly elvis any idea uh, when Rosetta maybe Tharp the mid 90s i'm gonna say 2016 i'm gonna roll the guess good guess good guess what 2018 what? <laughs> what? <laughs> and get this <laughs> get this like okay okay yeah like that's fucked like okay so you're i i started i like went to wikipedia because i was so blown away by this oh, yeah, and i had John to like Cash said she was her his favorite singer <laughs> oh yeah so like not only that but like there's this is a great quote that this is from noah laferve he's a he's like a music columnist for polyphonic and like on her tours, like like not only did she bring along like the Jordanaires, which you know became Elvis's like group, but Chuck Berry is is quoted as saying he based his entire career on Rosetta Tharp. And when did he say that? Because that's uh, it's a, it doesn't give a year for this. That's all Chuck I'm... Berry even once called his entire career one long Sister Rosetta Tharp impersonation. <laughs> 
Amazing. Great yeah. self-awareness. Like, yeah. You, you love to see that. Yeah. And like, the thing is like, Chuck Berry isn't the guy that's like pretending she doesn't exist. Right. Like that's what's no, frustrating no, no. too, is like, it's, it's the Led Zeppelin and the Eric Clapton and the, yeah. Like, or even like their record. Like, Rolling Stones. Yeah, I, I think it's like, yeah, the labels more than the performers. Sure. It's well, like, yeah. No, like, like, I don't know. Like, yeah, that's. Uh, we don't need to know the performers. But yeah, like, but yeah, like also. It's like clearly people like Elvis Presley was talking about her and like clearly yeah. people were talking about her and, and trying to tell you and you wouldn't and, and we wouldn't fucking listen. Right. Because we were just so fucking racist. Yes. And interesting enough, like Elvis didn't even like Elvis was inspired by her guitar playing. And like, I think it was like the image of seeing this, this black, like rock star singing with a group of like four white guys backing up. He says like, that's the image that resonated with him and right, yeah. like kind of made him idolize her as like a rock star, right. like somebody that rose above all this bullshit. Totally. Mm-hmm. But she proved that, that there was nothing but there's that nothing really mattered but the substance yeah. of what the fuck you're doing right but yeah um, i i just i just couldn't believe that it was like 2018 and she like started rock and roll like so i just i had to go to the wikipedia page and look at some of the people that were like inducted long before so i like i just i just pulled up some some like if some gary rates. glitter was well i assume gary glitter was fucking inducted before her he might have been taken out though i don't know that's that's a whole I didn't see, I, I could check it right. I didn't see Gary Glitter on, but some, some notable um, inductees before her were Van Morrison in 1993, Rod Stewart in 1994, <laughs> Confederate loving Leonard Skinner in 2006. Uh, this, was, this was just noteworthy. I don't think they don't, des- don't deserve to be there. But uh, Beastie Boys in 2012. And Tupac in 2013. <laughs> Jesus Christ! They were in before her. Like, when was right. Kid Rock and... inducted? Uh... <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, funnily enough, when I went to this Wikipedia page, so I'm on the Wikipedia page right now, and it shows all the inductees in the Hall of Fame. And you know what? Rosetta Tharp's not even on there. And it's because I oh, went wow. and I like looked it up, and then I went to the official like Rock and Roll Hall of fame like page and her name comes up when you type it in but it's as an early influencer so it's like what what kind of bullshit is that you're saying like the the woman who created the thing that you're making a hall of fame for (laughs) is like not good enough to be on the list of like inductees The Hall of Fame needs to be like renamed after her, actually. Like, yeah, and then yeah. everyone else can have their name on the wall within her building. It's like yeah. being like, oh yeah, that Albert Einstein guy. He was like an important influence. Yeah, so it's like again, <laughs> yeah. it's like it's like yeah. Oh my god, for physics, but he wasn't like okay. <laughs> That's exactly it. Kid Rock is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so she got in before Kid Rock, which is good. That is good. And but yeah, so it's I just found that so infuriating that when you go to the Wikipedia page for Rock and Roll Hall of Famers and you go to 2018, you won't see Rosetta Tharp, but you will see Bon Jovi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like I think that's. I mean, I don't want to. Bon Jovi's got some bangers. I'm not gonna. Bon Jovi's got lots <laughs> of bangers. He's got but... one banger that he just does with different words, but that's that's another story. <laughs> hey man. <laughs> 
I will always. No, I'm not saying I'm not saying Bon Jovi doesn't belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but you're right. I'm not saying it would either, but I'm <laughs> saying it's a bit insulting if, if, that you see his name if, there if, and you don't see Rosetta Tharp. Sister Rosetta Tharp should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes, me. yes. So get your shit together, Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what I got for Rosetta Tharp. No, that was, She's that good. was amazing. Yeah, that's uh, again like this is a uh, this is one of those ones where I was like, oh yeah, because that's like because I I know I'd heard heard about her before this, and I know I'd understood on some level that she was like seen as the progenitor of rock and roll, right? But like I just it, this was so cool to like look into and be like, holy fuck, she's the one that everyone's borrowing from. Yes, exactly. yeah. Well, it just really when Quote I first came across her, and it was like, okay, precursor to like all of these things, Everything. all of these amazing blues and rock guitars, like list her as an inspiration. But I, this is the first I'm hearing her. It's like, whoa, I like, so yeah. how did you find out about her? I actually, so I go to, um, I listed this in the resources, I think. I, one of my, um, websites that I like to just go to to find, you know, pop culture stuff is a website called Laughing Squid. And uh, uh, I came across an article on there one day in February called uh, The Pioneering Godmother of Rock Whose Sublime Guitar Skills Influenced Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry. And so I read that and I was just like, yes, this is a great subject. Yeah. True. Yeah. No, thanks. That's excellent. Well done. Thanks for a great episode, Wes. That was uh, fantastic. And uh, I listened to Sister Rosetta Tharp. Yeah, I, just put I her like, in your rotation with Elvis and Chuck Berry. Even if it's not true, I like Tall Skinny Papa. It's my favorite. Song, <laughs> right? I like that song. It's great. It was. It's it's one of her uh, B sides. Yeah, it's up there. But yeah. Um. Yeah. Great episode. Thanks again, Wes. Yeah. Hey, thanks for thanks, thanks for, for coming along, everybody, on this train. Yeah. Thanks. Um, if you like us, I think you should uh, subscribe. Obviously. Uh, maybe think about giving us a rating and a review on iTunes because that bumps us up in the almighty algorithm and, uh, and makes us a bigger podcast than we are and uh, if you, you have any suggestions for episodes or comments on episodes that we've done we'd love to hear from you you can find us on social media at 2BananasPod with the number 2 both uh, Twitter and Instagram and um, yeah that's those are the, the things I wanted to say to make sure that people like our stuff. Good. Thanks for that, Joe. Nailed yeah, it. Important reminders. Yeah, that's all. Oh Absolutely. yeah. But uh, I think yeah. that's it. I think we can we can call it a night. I don't know. Does anyone else sign off? Does anyone else have anything they want to say before we go? Uh, no. Keep no. Cool. Keep on keeping on right. and try to keep making it. Good night, everyone. Yeah. Make a good listen one. Listen to our sweet intro outro music. It's very good. Yeah, <laughs> listen to all of it. Yeah. It's not long. All right. Well, we'll talk to you. Uh, talk to you next time. Bye, y'all. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Hey there, lovely listeners. I'm Talia Murdoch, and I'm here to tell you about my show, Everything Economics. Every week, I talk about the world around you, specific social and economic issues, and dive into how fantasy realms would work in real life. That's Everything Economics on the Cave Goblin Network. This 
is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.